you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Darkmyths.org and Neopolis Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast. Featuring your host, Rob Clark. Where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. This is episode number 147 of the Lone Gummin Podcast, and I'm your host, Rob Clark. And I told you he'd be back. Bart Camp, researcher extraordinaire, is back with me this week with some more from the recent Dealey Plaza UK conference from the weekend of April uh, 28th and 29th. Bart, what's happening, my man? Hello, Rob. Hello, listeners. Thank you for having me once again. Yes, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. You can check Bart out at prayer-man.com for all things relevant. You've heard him on the show many, many times, and the things that he's researching are always very interesting, and he's always bringing us some good stuff here to the show. And uh, this week is no different, and we're going to be talking to Mr. John Newman today on the show. But before we get to John... um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what else went down at the uh, Dealey Plaza conference there. Yes, right. Uh, it's a two-day seminar. We do it every year. Um, I, If I'm not mistaken, it's been going on for almost 20 years, of which the last 16 have been in Canterbury, in Kent. And um, it's been great fun. Uh, we had uh, Barry Keane opening talking about Harold Skip Rydberg. Um, that was followed uh, by me with uh, the participants in the interrogation of Lee Oswald. And the second half was the legal representation side of uh, Lee Oswald while he was in custody. Uh, that was good fun. And then after that, we had Larry Hancock. Uh, Larry is almost on every year. And every year he brings a really, really good story. He's great. Uh, yeah, he's great. He's just you just sit down and just listen. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. and it's it's got that same vibe as uh, as his book. Uh, what's it? Someone would have talked. Yeah. Um, it's got that same vibe. His talk, and this time it was uh, quality. It was about uh, ZR Rifle and uh, William Harvey and QJ Win, and uh, yeah, it was just most interesting. Uh, of course, um, he uh, talks about the identity of QJ Win. And then after that, I did uh, a Q&A with Malcolm Blunt, which um, we heard last week. And, uh, yeah, that, uh, that was just great. It's fun to talk to Malcolm every time. And uh, that was day one. Then we uh, had our dinner uh, in Abbott's Hotel, which was not bad. It's quite nice, a nice location. Apparently, um, it was also the location about six years ago. And I had a dinner there. I wasn't a member then. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it was good fun. And then the next day on Sunday, um, we always start with an auction. And the auction are basically uh, books brought in by members. And um, artifacts are a lot of them are coins and, uh, like, silver 50, 50 cents pieces, uh, silver dollars, uh, quarters, you name it. And... Um, I myself don't have much interest in that, but uh, among the members, there is. Yeah, you got to raise uh, a little money somehow to keep these things going. Yeah, well, yeah, we we didn't do bad. I think we did about the equivalent of about $400 worth, so it's pretty cool. Um, uh, There were some good books uh, for sale as well. 
um, John Armstrong's book was for sale, and I really loved. Uh, there was a copy of the second print of Cover Up by uh, G. Gary Shaw, and it looked really good. And uh, I was thinking of buying it, but I've got plenty of books already, so I just nah. But it was it was it's a, it's a really nice book. Uh, a couple of other things that were just really interesting, and then after that we uh, had um, David Percox, who's a new member. We've had a few members join us, which is really cool. Uh, awesome. They're all around my age, like in their 40s and 50s. And, uh, you know, we just get the odd one coming and join us. It's really good because the group itself isn't getting really younger. You know, these guys all started this thing up when they were my age. And now they're all hitting 70s in their 70s. So, you know, they must yeah. feel it so, uh, one way or another. blood in there, you know. Yeah, exactly. And also a new point of view. And, you know, that's how it just right. works. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's refreshing. And um, then we were originally to have Ian Griggs on about the DPD. But um, Ian was admitted to the hospital uh, shortly before, about a week. And he had a urinary infection. And uh, so it's not a big deal. And they have been taking care of it. But uh, he was advised to stay at home. So, uh, sadly... I had to give it a miss. Yeah. And uh, we had Peter Meller, Pete Meller, step in. He's also a member. He's been a member for quite some time. Uh, in less than a week to go, and he came up with, um, he recorded a conversation at Lancer 2013, which was between Jim Jenkins and uh, William Matson Law. And this, of course, is all about the autopsy. And uh, graciously, he uh, had printed out the uh, transcript as such. So um, it was easy to follow. And, uh, you know, it was just half an hour. And it was just uh, really nice of him uh, to jump in as such. Then we had lunch. It was always good to have lunch. And then um, after that, I had my Q&A with um, John Newman. I regard John Newman as a god when it comes to uh, documentation and Oswald and the CIA as such. And just that methodical, meticulous approach to it. Um, I've got nothing but admiration for him and his work. Um, I'm also happy that he actually, because he went out of the game for a while and got back into it, the virus caught up with him, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's just really cool. He's got a book coming out probably end of this year, early next, if it, if, if it's, you know, if it's happening. Uh, end of this year. If it's not, then it will be probably early next. And, of course, uh, then he's got volume fours and five to follow as well. So we've got quite a few years uh, of his material uh, to look out for, which is great. And, uh, and that's yeah, where, he's the, just... where the angels so, tread. Yeah. His series. And uh, yeah, and uh, I think uh, the this next book is called Into the Storm. It's got this wicked cover with uh, the White House on the front with uh, a lightning bolt hitting it as such. Um, so uh, yeah, it's, it, it, I, I like the cover. It's really cool. Um, so and a, a couple of weeks ago, he, he he threw out a chart about Fesciana, which I will discuss with him as well. Uh, you know, he, once in a while he throws a nugget here and there on Facebook, and uh, he gets quite a you know as soon as he posts something, then uh, everybody uh, looks up and and pays attention as such. Oh yeah. And uh, I think uh, I mean I myself uh, take note. Of his of his work, not just of his work, but also of his method and what he does and how he approaches it as such. And he's very uh, very thorough. I mean, yeah, you you can't really fault it actually. In all honesty, yeah. um, I, mean, I, I, think I know I first that became aware of him like when he did uh, was Oswald and the CIA back in the yeah, back in the nineties. Yeah, I've got that. I've got his first uh, his first version, and uh, yeah, I read that, and uh, yeah, it's a great book. You know, and uh, the JFK in Vietnam as well. Just, it's just a fantastic book as well. It's yeah. Uh, yeah and I will tell awesome. you, you know, this uh, this angel where angels tread uh, yeah. series is yeah. I tr man, I tried to read volume one, and, <laughs> and a lot of it is above my pay grade. You know, they're getting into a lot of of Cuba specific things and yeah. and agency specific. Um, yeah, and you know, not a lot necessarily assassination related i mean I, yeah. I guess he's laying the groundwork for for you know the uh you know his ultimate you know conclusion but uh yeah. you know still highly recommended and you can get them pretty cheap you know on amazon really uh, well i myself 
you know, of course, I was interested in the, also in the CIA thing and the Vietnam thing as well. Um, when he goes really deep, and, and Cuba itself isn't really my forte or my interest, so to speak. Right. And I don't mean right. it in a bad way because I'm, I'm tied up with my own stuff, uh, Texas School Book Depository and so forth. And I just got very little time to read books. And I'll tell you what, I only read one book, and that was a month ago, and I read Gail Nix Jackson's book, and that was the first book I read in two years' time. Um, which a pretty good book, by the way. And um, but um, so I can't really like the the angels uh, books. I I haven't had time to look into it as such. Maybe one day I will. Uh, but uh, so far, so I only I wanted to. I didn't want to do a book where I was just going to discuss every book and his thesis and so forth. Because the thing is also um, what he when he talks about things, it's not like uh, oh I'll do that in two or three sentences there's a whole story behind it and he has to explain it as such so we only had one hour uh available for that and uh so i had to keep it pretty generic and go through the history uh starting uh from when he was working from the nsa till till now as such but it was a really good hour then after that we had jim eugenio as our final speaker and that was about jfk's foreign policy and that was a really good one as well. Uh, I think he did a part of it at Lancer. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just good. Um, the videos of all these talks are going to be uh, online next week or the week after. And, uh, yeah, and then we, of course, had the closure of the seminar, which is by, done by Stuart Galloway. And Stuart has been the uh, secretary of the uh, Dealey Plaza UK group uh, for the last 10 years. And he's going to stop at the end of this. Uh, we have got a new leader, so to speak, Joanne. So this time we are female fronted by the end of this year, wow. which is good. Yeah, I think it's great. Uh, yeah. we, we, we've been talking about like, who's going to take over the reins from Stuart. I myself didn't have interest in doing it uh, um, because I'm too tied up with too many things. I'm working on a new Dealey Plaza UK website as it is as well, and that's going to take a few months, plus, you know, my own research and so forth. So, um, but uh, yeah, I was really gracious of her to step in and um, take over the reins uh, soon. And uh, we'll be getting together in the next few months to talk about the next Canterbury or maybe London seminar. We're not sure whether we're going to stay in Canterbury due to the distance for some of our members. Some of them come from Scotland. So we're talking like they've been in a train all day and they have to go through London as well. If those that are not familiar with the uh, topography of the, um, the location of where Canterbury is, which is like in the southeast corner of Great Britain, and if you want to travel towards Canterbury and you're not by car, you'll have, and you say, for instance, you take the train, you'll have to go through London first. And then you'll have to, and if you come from north, you'll have to cross London first by itself and then get on the train and go to Canterbury as such. So it's quite a trek to do so, and it takes uh, a little bit of uh, perseverance, but we yeah. want to make it a little bit easier for everybody and uh, perhaps uh, hold it in London as such. That's provided we can find the facilities and the uh, and the accommodation as such uh, for a reasonable price for everyone to come down as such. But we'll see how it goes. But, well, now, uh, how, yeah. Let me ask you, Bart. Um, if, if, if anybody over in, in England and around London in, uh, is interested in joining Daily Plaza UK, how would they go about doing that? The best way would be to actually go to the website and they can download a form and they can then email it to one of us and the web address is dealyplazauk.org.uk and it's on the front page you can download it and uh, send it and what you uh, or what you can do is wait a few months because i'm working on a electronic form and uh, we're also having plans of you see if you become a member it's about roughly about 30 dollars for a year and you'll get a magazine that we release every year, once a year. And um, you get some other odds and sorts. But what we're going to do is with that new website is that I probably from next year, 
the videos from all the speakers then from the conferences will be on the lock and key and only be accessible to members as such. So right now our our member base is probably 95%, uh, 90, 95% British. There's a few people in America and in Japan. Um, but uh, we want to get a little bit more uh, international approach and people access a member area where there's going to be bits for people to read and so forth that isn't like publicly available as such. So just to, right. you know, just to have more for an international membership. Um, you know, uh, but this is the thing with the whole JFK thing. Everybody had, uh, you know, fanzines as such, like uh, third and fourth decade and, you know, what Gary Mack was doing uh, back in the 80s and so forth. And this was all like Xerox or really cheaply printed uh, little fanzines and magazines as such. And, uh, you know, times have moved on. So, um, you know, and also our membership base, like I said, we've got some newer people that are much more uh, familiar with uh, the digital aspect of uh, things. So, uh, you know, we're thinking of uh, probably uh, getting a members area so members can come to the website and uh, enjoy exclusive content as such. The other thing is that um, a month ago, we had Gilnix Jackson do a talk for us. And uh, what we do besides the Canterbury Seminar is that every, I don't know, six to eight, six to eight weeks, we have a meeting and we go to the pub, and there's a pub in London called The Flying Horse, and they've got a room upstairs, and they got a pretty good internet connection, and uh, we um, we got a nice big 55-inch screen, and uh, connect the laptop to it and talk on Skype. So uh, we also have going to have talks with uh, researchers on a Saturday afternoon in London and uh, through Skype, and uh, you know th those things will be videoed as well, and they'll they'll end up in the members area. Now, right now they're all free. I'm just bunging them on my Prayer Man uh, YouTube channel, but uh, at some point uh, they will get uh, hidden. So right. yeah, um, at some point um, we'll uh, we'll have this website live. Uh, it'll probably be by the end of this summer, some point. So okay. that should be yeah, good fun. So. You know, so, if, if, anyway. if hanging out in a pub and drinking pints and talking about JFK <laughs> is your kind of thing, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, we all know how it is. You know, there's not a it's, lot of people you can sit around and actually talk about JFK with in real life. Um, that's this true. is a perfect opportunity for folks over in Great Britain, yeah. you know, to join a fantastic organization and, uh, and, and enjoy it with like-minded yeah. individuals. Yeah, it's great fun. I mean, everybody's always like, yeah, I'm looking forward to coming and, uh, you know, just, um, I, I mean, those meetings – we have anything between uh, around 15 people coming in there. So it's, you know, and the room is, is, is not that big. So, but it's, it's, you know, it's big enough for us and it probably house about double that. But so everyone's got plenty of space to sit around and, uh, you know, we order from the bar downstairs and, uh, and all, all new members, Bart, Bart told me he will buy you a beer. The first one's on <laughs> yeah. him. Oh, uh, that's not a problem. First <laughs> one's on me. No worries. There yeah. you go. So, but let's right. go to uh, John Newman. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, it was a great talk, and I was honored to, to have him. And uh, last but not least, I'd like to thank Alan Dale for his assistance in uh, for us to obtain him and uh, make him available to us to uh, to talk to us. Yeah, it was great. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thank, thank you, Bart, for, for bringing him on our show and letting the whole world hear it. So, Without My further pleasure. ado, people, um, check out Bart at prayer-man.com, and you can join Dealer Plaza UK at dealerplazauk.org.uk. And here is Bart's talk with John Newman. Enjoy. Okay, uh, let's, uh, I think we should just start at the beginning uh, regarding your cryptologic career. You uh, worked for the military assistant. You were a military assistant to the uh, director of the NSA, General Holt. Um, would, you mind, would you mind telling us a little bit about that? A lot of that work was done for NSA either in field stations overseas or back at NSA headquarters. Uh, eventually, I ended up back at headquarters and was assigned 
to B Group, which handled East Asia, and I represented the NSA at all of the national intelligence estimates done at the CIA that had to do with Eastern Asia. I did that for a number of years. We got a new director at one point, General Olderman. He was a world-renowned academic, and one of the first things he wanted to do was to take a look at the performance of NSA on the NIE. And he was, when he discovered that I had been taking exceptions and footnotes to the State Department and the CIA on a lot of the estimates, uh, to make a long story short, my desk ended up outside of his front door. And for the next couple of years, there wasn't anything that went into his office and didn't go over my desk. That was the uh, intelligence um, assistant to him for two years. Right. Um, that basically also got you um, into in investigating the JFK assassination. Didn't did it not start at the end of your career as such? Uh, it was a uh, catalyst for my dissertation. I had looked been looking into not so much the assassination as Kennedy's policy in Vietnam. Mm. Um, I had three degrees. I was working on my PhD, so I, they were all on East Asia, so Vietnam wasn't something that was foreign to my concentrations over the, all the years, undergraduate and graduate work. And um, so um, I, Odom and I were on an airplane going down to a Navy intelligence school down in the Carolinas, and um, he put down his New York Times and asked me, what I was doing my dissertation on. I was obviously time for my quarterly counseling review. And I explained that I was going to do it on the succession of Mao Zedong in the People's Republic of China. And he, he said, oh, come on, you can do better than that. That's too easy for you. You know, why don't you step out of your safety net and do something um, a little more harder, you know, uh, than, than that. And it is a tradition in American academia anyway, I think it is in Western academia as well, which is at the dissertation level to break new ground or overturn orthodoxies and or both. So I said to him, all right, you know, what if I told you that Kennedy was pulling out of Vietnam at the time of his death? And he thought about it for a while and said, well, if you could make a good case for that, that'd be a great dissertation. And that was the end of it. That night when we got back, I called my dissertation advisor, Dr. Thornton at GW, and the rest is history. And then, of course, it led me eventually um, into the assassination uh, as the years go by afterwards, yeah. All right. So um, I'm, you wrote your book, your first book, JFK in Vietnam. And um, That's right. I just don't know, did the book come out before JFK the movie or did it come out after JFK the movie? It came out the same weekend. Right. I wrote 10 scenes in the movie that came right out of the book. Right. And I was involved with Stone directing the scenes that I had written uh, during the previous summer. Uh, there were two attempts to suppress my book. First by the NSA themselves, which is a long story. They eventually gave up. Um, and um, it's a fun story to tell, but it would take time. So I'll just leave it at that. They eventually failed. I called their bluff. Right. Um, they didn't want me to be in front of the press corps, the press junket, as a premiere of the movie, telling the press corps that NSA was trying to suppress my book. So they, they threw in the towel, but not my publisher. Warner Books eventually pulled the book, hid it in a warehouse, and wouldn't return my phone calls. And uh, this went on for some time, and I, I ended up getting a request from Jamie Galbraith, one of the three Galbraith sons of John Kenneth Galbraith, who was an economist like his father and teaching at University of Texas uh, in economics, and wanted to use that book uh, for on a syllabus of a graduate course he was teaching and couldn't do it because it wasn't available. And so we met at some point, and he asked me if I would mind if his family looked into it and his father knew um, Hillbox Jr., the, the CEO and chairman of Time Warner, Inc., which is a step above Warner Books. And so they told him what had happened, and he said, it's a scandal. And so he called the president of Warner Books. The next thing you know, I get a call from the president of Warner Books, wanting to know how I want to settle the thing. Am I going to sue, or what am I going to do? What they had done was illegal. Anyway, I, I just said, give me my rights back, and we'll call it quits. And they did, and I got my rights back. 
Right. And I waited 26 years to do another edition of the book uh, that came out this last year. Right. Yeah, I'll get back to that later. I just uh, there was one thing I would like to add with regards to the, the book JFK in Vietnam. You got a couple of really favorable reviews uh, from some heavyweight people. One of them is Arthur Schlesinger, who did it for the New York Times Book Review. But um, a certain Mr. Colby praised it as well, didn't he? That's right. He did. What did he actually say? So, I, he he said it was. Uh, like the others, that it was, you know, one of the most authoritative uh, accounts of, of Kennedy's Vietnam policy. The same thing that Schlesinger said, actually. It was interesting. That's what got Jamie Galbraith's interest, because he looked at the back of the book. He got one early on before Warner Books of Press, and he couldn't believe the, the juxtaposition of Colby and, and Stone, actually. Um, Schlesinger wasn't on the back of the book with the blur because Warner Books of Press, his, uh, his very nice page one review in the New York Times, uh, I didn't know that, that they had done that on purpose, but I found that out later. But we do have it now, and so in the new edition, the 2017 edition, the, the Schlesinger blurb is on the back of the book. Right. Um, i got a question regarding your methods, regarding your work. Uh, you've got a rather chronological approach to your work. Is this uh, a remnant from your cryptologic career um, at the NSA, that to go through something and basically uh, investigate as such? Is a chronological approach necessary? Well, I think it is in social science and in history, and I'm a credentialed historian. Uh, it it makes a lot of sense, and, it, and it's how you do police work. Now, this is a murder, a murder case, and, and instead of just looking at one aspect that may interest you, a, a murder investigation starts at the very beginning, and and everybody who was involved, whether tangentially or deeply involved, and where they lived, where they were born, where they went to school, their finances, you know, every time they crossed the border, all that stuff has to be looked at. And so I had written, as you know, Oswald, the CIA, at some point many years ago, and re redid uh, a new edition in 2013. And then I took a vacation and did a book on uh, yogic mysticism and the Gospel of Thomas for about six years, and then came back to the case and decided uh, that I really had to make a decision. Uh, I wasn't ready to write a book about the case. It was either all in or all out, and all in meant just basically taking the tablecloth and all the dishes and yanking it off the table and going back to square one and start at ground zero, OSS, the old CIA, and, and all that stuff, and, and look at all the characters that developed later on having an indirect or a direct association, as we think, you know, in, in the way events turned out in Dealey Plaza years later. And I'm painstakingly, methodically making my way through it very slowly. It's not, it's not really exciting for some researchers who you know, feed at certain water coolers that, that, that they like. But uh, for me, um, I'll get back into 63 in Volume 5. That's going to be in 2022. So okay. I'm now motoring in through 61 and 62 in Volume 3. That's where it stands. Right. right. I just want to go to step back a little. We'll go back to Oswald and the CIA. And in 1999, you did uh, a talk at the, the Lancer conference. And you gave um, <clears throat> the whole Mexico City thing um, a new interpretation. Um, my question is really simple. Uh, was Oswald in Mexico City? And if so, what did he do there? You know, my answer to you now is I'm an agnostic on that. Um, I leaned, I, I've always allowed for it could be him, it might not be him. Either way, he's impersonated. Right. So that's the important thing, because the plan A, to get him to Cuba or to make it look like he was to Cuba, it did not work. And so the impersonation on the phone was meant to fill that gap so that you could have this legend that would pop up on 112263 uh, that connected him to Castro and the Kremlin. So whether or not he's the one who was there, he wasn't making those phone calls. Anyway, of course, this is a perennial question. Everybody wants to know, what do you think about, was it him or not? You know, I don't care. Uh, it could have been him, and it might not have been him, but that's not what matters to me. What matters to me is how the trip, whoever was there, 
whether it was him and his lobster, how it was used to prevent a cover-up in the murder of the president. Right. So um, That's how I feel now. It wasn't exactly the way I felt that many years ago at Lancer, way back then, but yeah. That's um, almost 20 it years was ago. new at, at, that, at that point. We didn't have the Lopez report hadn't been released yet, and so I wrote what I wrote about the impersonation of Oswald based upon what I knew about what had happened inside the Cuban consulate in the Soviet embassy. Mm. And it was clear to me that the person who was supposed to be Oswald didn't know what exactly was going on inside the buildings. He could see him walk in, he could see him walk out. Um, but So there was a big disconnect. And so I, I stepped out on it and said, you know, here's what I think. And I was amazed when I saw the Lopez report, Eddie Lopez and Dan Hardway, mm. I should say. It's not just Eddie's report. Um, but that's what they had concluded, that the, the, the person on the phone that was an imposter. And I had no idea that when I first wrote the, the first edition of Oswald the CIA. I, I had to base it. I had to make a call one way or the other, and it looked to me like it couldn't be him. Yeah. And so my views have evolved over the years. You know, it's the same thing about who's shooting Kennedy. I don't care about who sh shot or whether <laughs> Oswald did it. Uh, tend to think he probably didn't, but it doesn't. That doesn't matter whether there was one shooter or two shooters or three shooters or four shooters. What matters to me is however many shooters there are, who was behind the shooters, right? That's what I care about. Right. And so I'm, I'm looking, I'm gearing my sort of police work here in that direction, so I can find out where the plot was hatched and when, how far back we go, and what were its characteristics and what did they expect, uh, and how to get away with. It. That's more important than who pulls the trigger. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, fair enough. Um, I just want to step back again because you mentioned it that you quit for a while and immerse yourself into yoga instead. I just wanted to know two things basically. Why, what was the reason for you to basically to pull out of it and what, what sparked it again, the interest to get back into it again? Okay, fair enough. Uh, I needed a breather anyway. And I, I, look, I, by that time, uh, 2011 I think it was, I'd know, come to know a lot of people uh, who had been a generation before me. They were still alive, many of them, and then others. And I was aware of the rabbit hole syndrome, if I can call it that. Right. People falling down into the rabbit hole of the Kennedy assassination and having no other life. And not only that, but getting angry with the people that didn't share their views. You know, instead of working collegially, you had this wide array of people that were angry with each other a lot of the time. Uh, especially around the, the Dealey Plaza forensics thing. I went to a lot of these, these conferences, and oh my gosh, the uh, hollering and screaming and vective and all that kind of stuff around it really turned me off. Anyway, I just decided I would like to, to, to have more of a life than the Kennedy case, and so I've been very interested in mysticism and things like that, and it turned out to be uh, a work that had a lot of unexpected things for me, so it, it ended up taking six years to go through comparing the mysticism of the Gospel of Thomas, maybe a little bit Gospel of Mark, the mysticism of, of Jesus to the archaic mysticism of yoga. It was a good project. It, uh, I say it was a vacation. It was hard to do, you know, about 8,000 footnotes or something like that, but it pulled me into the subject matter and a lot of people that were around me, and, and so it was a good thing to do. Um, what pulled me back into the case later I was uh, <clears throat> helping somebody out who's anonymous right now, who, who this person will, will publish eventually, um, and was helping out, and it had a lot to do with June Cobb um, and other Phillips and, and other personalities that many of us have come to know and not like very much, but love the fact that we still have them to, to study and look at all the documents and that sort of thing. But uh, it, it, in, in that uh, year and a half or so was when I decided I can't do this. Uh, I really can't go on doing this unless I make up my mind that I'm going to actually do this all the way to the end. And so that was the decision. It, it, you know, it was okay. It was fun to be, you know, doing things again. And, and But it was still a lot of work, you know, as it is. As anybody who's done serious research in the case knows that uh, this isn't easy stuff. And so... Uh, unlike, it, it, one of the things that helped me make up my mind was, whereas my wife hadn't been so uh, enthusiastic in previous years about it, and, and you may know people whose 
spouses aren't very happy with the amount of attention they give to the case too. That's not unusual. But un in this instance, my wife actually said, "Yeah, you should, you should do this," and I, you know, I was surprised. But anyway, there were a lot of factors that went into the decision part. I can't say it was any one thing, but but the main thing was whether I was, I was really serious or not. And serious meant the hell with what I know now. Let me go back and start all over again. I did that three times with that Jesus book. Threw the manuscript away and read it and read it until I it, I, I, took, I had to take myself out of the story right. and just fast my seatbelt and take the right and that's what I'm doing right now in the Kennedy case. Right. Yeah, great stuff. Uh, you just mentioned June Cobb. Can you tell us a little bit more about him? I could I could bend your ear for the next six hours. Let's <laughs> uh, stick to five several, minutes. There are like four chapters on her. Uh, there's a couple of chapters in Volume 1 where angels tread lightly. That's her phrase, by the way. She wrote a memo to RFK after the Bay of Pigs, you know, saying, you know, I've heard that a woman can be excused um, uh, for treading where angels, stomping, you know, for stomping where angels tread lightly. And I, I like that. So I, I use that as a subtitle uh, for the work. Uh, but then there are four chapters I put about all of the stuff she was doing with the CIA before she's supposed to be working for the CIA in, in volume two, Countdown to Darkness. So she was involved in narcotics uh, with, an, with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, you know, smuggling stuff to be to penetrate uh, Columbia, a Colombian cartel and, and busting them and working with, with the FBN. A lot of my interviews with her and, and some of the correspondence that she had with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was stolen from my West Virginia property where, where I used to live for a number of years uh, and then commute back to, to Maryland to teach. And so while I was gone one weekend, uh, some people came in and decided to help themselves. It's all the cop stuff. The only thing is they, they missed several important pieces of evidence because I had misfiled them, so I still have some of them. But anyway, Jim Cobb was a... Uh, she has as big a 201 file as anybody does. And we have yet to see her and a lot of her associates, uh, their materials fully released in this 2017 release. It's one of the most pathetic parts. There are, by the way, I think there are a lot of good things in this 2017 release, things that are very important. But the June Cop stuff has been very disappointing, as well as the Odeos, the Eunice Odeo, and other people that, that Cobb interfaced with in Mexico City. Uh, all that stuff is like, much of it is still completely redacted. Um, but she's a fascinating character, Cold War female spy uh, who, who did things, who penetrated Castro's inner circle. Very hard to do that, but she, she was intrepid. She, she did that. And um, so, you know, what else do you want to know? I mean, there's, there's so many aspects to, to, to this woman's life. She, as Philip said, uh, when he was asked by uh, you know, uh, the House Select Committee, Dan Hardway asked uh, Phillips about her, and, and, and he said, well, blind, flew an airplane, which is interesting because we don't think she did, but she might have. Anyway, uh, hit, had, had a track record for hitting beds in Cuba, and, and so he, Phillips, painted a rather interesting picture of her, but that, that aspect of her life was known and used by counterintelligence uh, at the CIA. Uh, the counterintelligence staff and uh, actually the, uh, and the uh, foreign intelligence staff actually had a presence in WH4 in the Cuban operations, like they had a presence in all of the covert action desks for other area area uh, responsibilities in the world, and they ran their own operations underneath what WH4 was doing with the Eisenhower plan. And at the top of the list, we have some documents on that, but at the top of the list was a lady of questionable repute who had contacts all through the upper echelons of the Castro, Castro regime, and that was June Cobb. So anyway, she's a very interesting story, but uh, for me, uh, it's not the end and be-all of the universe. The whole universe does not revolve around June Cobb, but, but uh, her story is worth telling. And the people that she intersects with are a lot of people that many of us researchers have been researching for a long time. So it's useful, and I look forward to the day, if, if it ever happens, when we get all our stuff right. classified. Right. All right. Cool. 
Um, just jumping forward regarding the uh, document releases of 2017, uh, you said that there's a lot of good stuff. I myself haven't looked at the CIA stuff. I've looked at the FBI stuff. But could you just summarize what's good about it? I mean, we know what's missing. I mean, Jeff Morley uh, hammers on about that and uh, quite a few others, what, what files are still redacted and so forth. But uh, can you tell us a little bit what, uh, what nuggets you may have found uh, in, the, in the last batch that's been coming out? Again, I could probably talk to you for uh, the next four or five hours. Another four hours. So let me just pick a couple of things out. Sure. First of all, one of the things that I've been doing in this new series is to uh, break as many cryptonyms and pseudonyms as I can. And in the appendices at the back of my book, you'll find hundreds of them that were never known before publicly and that I was able to prove through very painstaking work and going through documents and comparing stuff that, in, in some instances, that had been accidentally released, which we love to find those kind of things. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so I want to know who's behind or what operation is behind every single CIA cryptid. And I want to know who's behind every pseudonym. Once, often one person has not one, but two, three, or four different pseudonyms. And that's how they break the story apart uh, and, and, and compartmentalize it so people like you and me and foreign intelligence uh, organizations cannot figure out the story. And so that matters to me a great deal. I don't know how you can say you're doing in-depth research on the case if you are not working like Bill Sipich and Jerry Shinley and a bunch of other people I know uh, who work with me and have over the years if you're not trying to break these Christian pseudos, right? And so this 2017 release is fantastic in that regard. There's scores of them. Uh, digress for all the countries we haven't had, for example. That's helpful to know what country we're talking about, right? And then, then in, other, in other things, plus a lot of the things that I did, uh, Crips especially, and some pseudos, and published in Countdown to Darkness, um, were magically released in the clear. I don't know whether the reviewers decided that they, couldn't, they shouldn't be hidden anymore because I'd already published them and proved them or not, but anyway... A huge number of them in Countdown to Darkness that uh, was published before the 2017 release were confirmed. So that gave me solace that I was, you know, I was going down the right path there. But even if that was the only thing we got out of this release, that in itself is a very big thing. All the crypts and pseudos that we've, we've come across, okay? Now that's not one person or that's not like the memo they wrote about shooting Kennedy and Dealey Plaza. No. It's not that, but it's very important to fundamental research on the case. Okay, so that's just one big example. Uh, to get specific, um, some specific examples, uh, there's a guy by the name of Emilio Rodriguez, um, Americo Rodriguez. He was the, uh, the best stay-behind guy we had. He ended up, I mean, he was a, a dual citizenship. His father was A.M. Jute one, who was Ernesto Napoleon Rodriguez. A lot of people know about him in New Orleans. But uh, his son, Emilio, was the most carefully protected CIA asset ever that I know of. And I was able to actually prove who he was, his, his uh, crypt AMI one, and his, his pseudonyms and all that. And all that he did during the period right after the breaking relations between Cuba and the United States uh, as, as really one of the, the top three guys in the Stay Behind Nets, along with uh, Tony Sforza, was another one. Very oh, yeah. interesting character, as yeah. many of you may know. But uh, he and Emilio and, 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 and another guy by the name of Omelia, uh, who was an MRP guy and a CIA contract employee, were running all the Stay Behind Nets. And I did a lot of work. It, it took me about a year and a half to uncover Emilio and and some of the guns in the very first release, way back, I think it was in July of 17, it was before October 26th. All that work I did, uh, they, 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 they put it out, it was there, and more. It gave us like the, the uh, Stay Behind Agent net, Networks, and there he was in the middle of, of everything. It was a lot of fun to see that that stuff all ended up being right. Uh, more recently, <clears throat> I've been working in uh, Volume 3, a lot on Vestiana and a lot on the Senko stuff and the KGB CIA spy wars. And there is a ton of stuff relevant to uh, very important parts of the Vestiana story late in the game. And I'm talking about uh, 
Bolivia and Chile, the plot to assassinate uh, Castro there on a trip to uh, Chile in 1971, and Vesiana was involved in that. But um, uh, I have written and I have made presentations at James Madison University, at Lancer, uh, and more recently in San Francisco on Vesiana and on my new work on him. I, I put out in public a lot of the stuff that's in Chapter 3, which deals with Vesiana's years 59 to 61 and all the completely uh, amazing, untrue uh, James Bond-type uh, stories that he told about him and Phillips then, and, and I'm just now finishing up his, his work with the U.S. Army in 62 and 63 during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, uh, there, there are very important aspects of this whole long story uh, that ends up, you know, with him in prison for cocaine smuggling that he probably didn't do. And it's in prison that he made up the whole story that he superimposed back on all these other acts of the play, um, and probably including the, the, the dessert that everybody so loves, the meeting in the Southland Hotel in Dallas, Texas, oh, between Phillips yeah. <laughs> and Oswald and Vesiata. Uh, I'm not going to deal with that until volume five, by the way. So anybody expects me to go ahead and, and, and jump in the middle of that one. It's, sorry, I'll talk to you when I get to volume five on that. But what I am doing is laying out what I think was behind all of it. And that was uh, being put in prison for a few years from way down at the end of the line. Now, to get back to your question, so what has that got to do with 2017 release? A lot. Because one of the key characters that was, in fact, the person closest to Vesiana in the world was a guy by the name of Felix Zabala Mox in Puerto Rico. And Felix ended up being part of the Annie Castro assassination plot later on. But a, a ton of new documents, many of them almost wholly unredacted. Uh, uh, pertaining to, to Zabala have been released only in the 2017 release and have given me a, a, just a huge amount of encouragement in what I'm doing with Phyllis and trying to figure out, you know, if we can rescue anything, uh, true parts of this story. And I think there are some that, that, that really or, originate at the end of the line rather than the beginning. Um, so that has been, I, I mean, I have four or five linear inches of brand new material on Zabala and Vesiana that came out of the 2017 release, okay? That much. And I like to go on, but so for me, here's the problem uh, when you talk about the new release. If you just started working on the case in the last five or six years, you don't have a prayer, I don't think, of getting very much out of this new release. You have to understand that before this new release, there were five million pages that they gave us. And unless you've been actually working for a long time in those five million pages, how can you look at some of these, you know, still redacted and very skimpy things in the release and, and make anything of it? You have, to, you have to take the stuff that's in the new releases and you have to compare it to what we know is in those five million pages. And there are very good things on Ed Lansdale, which I'm working with on the Vesiana stuff and uh, uh, other things about Lansdale and Mongoose and things like that, that you have to have the right documents from the previous releases that you can set next side by side next to the new documents or they don't make any sense. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it isn't that you have to be Albert Einstein. You need to be a good police grunt. Roll up the shirt sleeves, get out your stubby pencil and do old fashioned police work. Yeah. Yeah. And this, it's a long and laborious pr process, no doubt. Um, it is. Yes, obviously. Um, I just got a quick question with regards to the, um, the bureaucracy of the agency as such, and um, specifically the Office of Central Reference. Um, and a part of that is the Office of Mail Logistics. Why is this important? Well, you know, the House Select Committee tried to get into that by looking at the record and routing sheets. If we go through Records Integration Division first, and actually even before that, Office of Mail Logistics. So this is 
the reason it's so important is because these organizations, OCR and RID and OML and, 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 and others, they're, they're, they're not just those, but there are four or five others as well. They determine, uh, we, we used to call them the little ladies in tennis shoes, you know, they're, but they're the ones who know the most, actually, because they decide when a piece of paper comes in from another agency who gets to see it and who doesn't. Now, they don't make the decision in the blind. The security office and the counterintelligence people are right there to make sure if they have something they want to do with this stuff and there's things, people that they don't want to see, those arrangements have to be made before the piece of paper, the document ever enters the distribution chains or the dissemination channels. So you can't possibly solve any mysteries going on that the CIA has been withholding from us all these years if you do not know that whole side of the structure. And you've already had somebody at your uh, event this weekend who I consider one of the leading authorities in the world on these, these parts of the organization. That's my good friend Malcolm Blunt. There's nobody better versed in this who's done more work than Malcolm has on he's, this extremely important part of the agency. He's sitting it right here. It helps us, for example, under, it, it helps us understand the Mohunt. Without understanding these parts of the CIA, there's no way we can make sense of what Angleton was doing and how he expected to trap them all. Right. Got it. How do you, actually, that's an interesting question um, for me, but um, there are, like, I don't know, known people. There are about probably half a dozen people that really dig into the agency as such. But in what way do you differentiate from each other, actually, with, when it comes to the research? How do we differentiate from each other? I there mean, might be... So, for example, I mean, one person might be more of a specialist on something here that somebody over there isn't. But I have to tell you, for the most part, when I think about Bill Simpich and Malcolm Blunt and Dan Hardway and Jerry Shinley and people like that, we're all interested in the same things. Right. And so we share stuff. Uh, and so one thing in, in, in this in, in one compartment, um, even though say Bill Simmons might have been working harder on that than, than I have, it's still important because it affects what I'm doing over here in, in this other compartment. Right. If we're right, if we are on the path here to where uh, the people that we suspect ultimately play some role, larger or smaller, direct or indirect in the assassination, you have to know uh, be and stay abreast of what the best minds uh, are, are up to on the case. Yeah, so I don't see, I don't differentiate myself from these other researchers. They heal me. They help me. They they are part of, of of why I can do what I do. I couldn't do it without them. Right. And that's vice versa. I, I think we're we're, we're collegial. We, we 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 might disagree, but usually the disagreements don't last very long because somebody's right and somebody's wrong. And when that happens, and you're wrong, you just say, "Yep, I missed that one." Okay, let's move on. So there there isn't a whole lot that differentiates us. We don't we don't you know stand under a flagpole and swear by God that this is it. You know. I'll never change my mind. No, that's not how that's not how it works in my life anyway. I really enjoy working with uh, the research researchers that I've come to know and trust. That's really who don't have predisposed views on things that will change their mind in a heartbeat to show them a ray of light. Well, that's really refreshing to hear because normally in the, within the Kennedy assassination research, there's nothing but bickering and fighting and uh, God knows what. So. Uh, Amen, brother. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, we've got a couple of questions left. Um, you mentioned uh, Yuri Nosenko. Um, yeah. Was he a legitimate defector? Absolutely not. Biggest fraud ever, which is what uh, Sergei Kondrashev actually asked of Pete Bagley in the end, you know, before he died. He said, How, oh, how could your service believe in that man? And Kondrashev knew him better than anybody. He was his case officer. Kondrashev was the number one counterintel guy for Soviet intelligence throughout the Cold War. And I've written extensively on this uh, in, in volume three, so it's not published yet, but I have, I have uh, given 90-minute presentations three times in the public, and they're, all, they're on various websites and stuff, so help yourself. But understand this, it is complicated. Because when you when you enter, it is a, a wilderness of mirrors, and, when it, and it's not just about Nosenko. Nosenko is one of many false defectors, and then there are good defectors, and then there were false defectors that turned into good defectors. 
and then you have one service working against the other service, and there's lies everywhere all around. So it is not for Cub Scouts, okay? Either you're, you, you need to prepare yourself to be schizophrenic and, 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 and go crazy at times if you want to enter this labyrinth and try and, and, and figure it out. But it has to be done because, well, for a lot of reasons, not for none other than Nosenko shows up a few weeks after the Kennedy assassination with this bullshit story about, yeah, you know, I was the one who handled the files, and I, and I did all this stuff, and I knew everything about them. And it's totally untrue. But that's only the end of the line. If you go back, and it's just like with Vesiana. You know, everybody likes that part of the story. Right, the, the the dessert, as it is with Vesiana in this this uh, Southland Hotel thing. Yeah. What about Act One, Two, and Three? You have to go back and look at Vesiana in Geneva in '62, where everything he said to Bagley and Kizavalter was false. He was sent by Grievenoff, the second chief director, to to um, throw the sense off of all the good leaders. The leaders had given us in the Popoff hat. And so he was, he was a, a, a false defector from square one. And, but people aren't, aren't interested in, in that. They, what, they're interested in just one little piece later on, downstream, that helps some part of the case, I suppose, that they're making. But you can't do that. You have to take each one of these people and put, lay out their entire life. And, and in that context, you, you have more, you're more able to make judgments about whether they're telling the truth or not. Right. Well, you've mentioned Vesiana twice already during this talk. Um, I remember you two weeks ago posting something on Facebook with a little uh, picture of a list of uh, quotes and um, uh, dates as such. And it got quite a response amongst uh, JFK uh, research folks. And uh, But um, it's, this is coming out in your book in December, isn't it? You've got two chapters on it. Into the storm, is that correct? Uh, right now, I've got two chapters on Vesiana. Yeah, but this this chart that you're talking about will take you more than a few weeks, a couple of months, to actually figure out. And that's why I decided to go ahead and put it up now to give people who are interested a chance to get to work on here. Uh, the the thing that jumps off of this page, this chart, is the fact that the the JFK research community was asleep at the switch. Um, on this Bethiana story. And, and, and this particular chart takes one item, which was the date of the first meeting uh, that Bethiana had with a guy he called Bishop for a long time, then eventually at the very end said he was David Phillips. And that's all over the map. That changes time and time again. It's actually stable for many years until the the Feds of Maryland uh, AARC conference of 2014 and then his book, Trained to Kill. Yeah. And so what happens is you realize that the only person who figured it out wasn't Dick Russell or, or Tony Summers or, or, or others uh, in our midst who have written about Lesiana. They all stick with the wrong stuff. Uh, but the right stuff started to come out, the evidence, when the files were released. Right. The, the act was passed in, in, in 92, but it isn't until the end of, actually in 94, when NARA 2 starts filling up with all these documents. And Fabian Escalante sent his little spies from the Cuban interest section, of course, up there to look at those files. And of course, there it was. It was wrong. You could not, you could not have this first meeting taking place in mid-1960. Phillips wasn't anywhere around Cuba. He was, he, he was, uh, he was back at headquarters with, with his hands full, all kinds of stuff on the Eisenhower plant. Anyway, Fabian uh, Escalante figured it out, but all the Americans and Brits that were working on this, they went into their second editions of their book and didn't look at the documents and didn't update anything. And so, you know, I, I, I sent this uh, chart in to Dick Russell. He looked at it for about three or four minutes with the information and said, you're right. Wow, we got it wrong. Yeah, no kidding. And so um, it's just an, another example of why you can't just go to your, your, your the, the sweets, the, your desserts. You've got to eat your meat and potatoes first, your vegetables, you know, Acts 1, 2, and 3. And so that chart gives you a roadmap to how bad 
the research community really got this uh, and fell for this story that Bessiana put together. Uh, and I believe it was all put together years later in jail, 73 to 75, cooling his heels for alleged, I think it was a trumped up charge, cocaine trafficking. And, uh, you know, that's been as short a period of time as I can explain why I put this chart out there. I've I've done more than that, you know, in in public presentations, but they're not always easy to get or, you know, the fidelity of the audio might not be so good. But anyway, um, you can just take this chart all by yourself. You probably have, uh, you know, Tony's book and and Dick Russell's book. You You can look them up. You can see. Uh, what went wrong on the Vestiana story from the very beginning hmm. and why uh, we need to, to be very circumspect before we go to this uh, South, Southland Hotel extravagant meeting and, uh, and, and just say, okay, well, there's, I mean, there's no evidence for it, right? It's just, it's, it's just he says it. Except that you got a, a young man who years later decided he was there too and said something about it. But, I don't really want to get into that. I will. I will return to that also in Volume Five. It's off the table as far as I'm concerned. For me, I'm interested in the rest of the story. Right. And that chart. Uh, yeah, I did get a lot of feedback uh, on on Facebook, but uh, it's been making the rounds behind the scenes uh, in in the research community. Right. Okay. My um, uh, final question is that we know we got uh, into the storm to expect in December. Is that correct? So far, I mean, you know, what happens is when I get there, if it's not finished, it's not finished. That happened in Countdown to Darkness. That was a wait two or three months. Um, so it, uh, I'm not going to stick to a publication schedule if I'm not done writing. No, of course not. Yeah. Right now, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, the second Vestiana chapter was longer than I wanted. To. It took more time than I wanted it to. But I've got about seven chapters finished. They're very polished, and they're very, they're very, very interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I won't list what they are right now. Anyway, they, for, I have been talking about the Vestiana stuff and the, the Sanko stuff publicly. But yeah, I, if it's not out in December, it'll be out soon after that. Okay. But that's my time frame. Okay. Is there anyone else here in the room who wants to ask a question to Dr. Newman? No. Yes? Come forward, Peter. Come forward. Oh, speak out loud. Yeah, right. Um, I, I just love one and two, and I uh, can't wait for volume three. Uh, is there anything in volume three relating to uh, uh, Dag Hammarskjöld? Did you hear the question? No, wow. um, you know, uh, I did a lot on uh, the Congo in volume two. Uh, I think three, at least three chapters. Now, the Dag Hammarskjöld uh, death or murder however you want to look is later i mean i i could do some but i think lisa pease has, has got something coming out on that and would probably be a lot more than i would have time because when i do something i want to put it under not just the electron microscope i like to go down to the subatomic particles you know into the quarks in there and it takes a lot of time so uh my sense of of, of the Amersol, uh wreck is that it wasn't and it was probably you know, an assassination, but uh, it's not something that, uh, I mean, I, I did my thing for the time being on the Congo. Terrible, terrible chapters, actually. I don't know if you've read them, but they're awful. That story is awful, what they did to Lumumba. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have a plan right now to, to have a chapter on uh, Hammersoll and Volume 3. Okay. Yes? Uh, since Messiana is one of the few people who are actually still alive. We've got to be very careful about what's coming out in the next book. Yeah, you know, um, I was there, you know, because I'm on the ARC Board of Directors, and I presented at, the, at our conference in Bethesda. And so I was there, you know, for Messiana's presentation. It was like a coronation, actually. Um, and his fan, his son was there, and it's not just that, it's, you know, um, Marie Fonzie was there. And, uh, and Vestiana did a lot of this stuff and didn't tell, ultimately, what he had to say about it until till Fonzie died. Why is that? And so it isn't just uh, uh, Vestiana who's still alive. What about his family? 
What about Marie Fonzie? What about people, you know, that whose lives are going to be negatively impacted if what I'm saying is true, you know? And maybe they, they won't be negative. Maybe, uh, maybe they'll just embrace whatever it is for the sake of those who are dead and gone. I don't know. But I'm less worried about Vestiana, who's, who told the tale, than the people who love him and, and, and Fonzie and, and his family that is left behind here. I worry about them. Okay. No one else? No? Okay. All right, Dr. Newman, thank you very much for your time to talk to us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you and bye-bye. Bye. Carl's Jr.'s new guacamole double cheeseburger is only 299 bucks. You forgot the decimal? Only 299 bucks! Not decibel, decimal? The guacamole double cheeseburger is only $2.99 at Carl's Jr.? Oops. Available for a limited time. Price participation may vary. Tax not included. Carl's Jr.'s new guacamole double cheeseburger is only 299 bucks. You forgot the decimal? Only 299 bucks! Not decibel, decimal? The guacamole double cheeseburger is only $2.99 at Carl's Jr.? Oops. Available for a limited time. Price participation may vary. Tax not included.